Over the past group of weeks, we started a series several weeks ago, in fact, where we're looking through the book of Proverbs. And I'd just be curious, just maybe by show of hands, how many of you would consider Proverbs one of your go-to books in the Bible? Meaning it's probably one of the books that you read maybe a little extra. Yeah, several of you, quite a few of you, in fact. Uh, That does not surprise me. There's so much godly counsel as we're reading through the book of Proverbs. It's basically a shortcut to understand many things that the Lord values and, and things that the Lord wants us to incorporate into our lives in a very healthy way. And we do this as the fruit of our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that I truly appreciate about the book of Proverbs is the fact that It doesn't skip over the awkward and the difficult subjects because it's very obvious that these are the type of things that in some respects we may need to hear even more than some of the more obvious things. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 5. And what we're going to do normally at at, at the start of our time together, I read the whole passage that we're going to look at. But today I want to take the liberty to just look at it in segments. So we're going to look at it a segment at a time, and we're going to be talking about this idea of affair-proofing your heart. What does it look like, according to Proverbs 5, to affair-proof your heart? Now, admittedly, slightly awkward subject, but also very much the type of thing that we as people who believe in Jesus Christ and want to live out that that, uh, faith in the midst of every context that the Lord places us in, this is the type of thing that we need to hear and wrestle with. Now, let me, let me mention this. Well, let me do this. I, I want to pray for us first, and then I want to share something uh, that I experienced several years ago uh, with a, a friend that I was trying to walk through something with, and uh, I want to tell you how that worked out, the good and the bad of it. Uh, but before we do, let me have a word of prayer for us. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to just spend some time this morning singing our praise to you, worshiping you, studying your word together, growing in our walk with you together. Lord, we're just grateful to have that privilege. And and Lord, we pray that now as we take a look at your word, that you would help us to understand it in its entirety, that we would apply it to our lives, that we wouldn't skip over things that can be personally challenging or even sometimes difficult to wrestle with. And so, Lord, we know that this is one of those chapters that that really talks about very sensitive things, but it does so in such a redemptive way that it would be a shame to skip it. And so, Lord, as as we're diving into it today, as we're immersing ourselves in its content, we pray that you'd help us to understand more about it. We pray that we would know your son, Jesus Christ, more fully through it, and we're grateful, Lord, for the privilege to be able to, to start off our week understanding and learning this kind of content that you've given to us in your word. We commit this time to you now, Lord. We're thankful for it, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So years ago, this is, this is quite a few years ago now, um, and I'm kind of amazed when I think back at how long ago this was, but I had a friend who seemed to me to be on a dangerous path as I was observing his life and, and um, you know, as I'm just kind of seeing the things that he was inviting into his life, he seemed to be on a dangerous path. And I started to notice that he was becoming far too comfortable interacting with women in a way that, in my opinion, was crossing an ethical line. And it, it just, I was starting to get a weird feeling about it. It just seemed to be crossing an ethical line. 
And I wondered at first if maybe I was the only one noticing this. I thought maybe I'm the only one seeing this. Maybe I'm jumping to conclusions. I certainly didn't want to do that. But then his behavior started to catch the attention of several other friends. And so I decided that instead of talking about him, that I had an obligation as someone who called myself his friend to just go directly to him. I thought, and, I, and believe me, this was not something I was jumping up and down with excitement about to have a conversation about these sort of things, but I decided, I'm just going to talk to him. And I knew ahead of time it was going to be an awkward conversation. I knew I wasn't necessarily going to enjoy it, but my conscience would not let me not have the conversation. I was fearful he was going to do something that was going to harm his marriage. I was fearful he was going to do something that would damage his testimony, and it troubled me, the thought of that. So we met, we talked about these things, I shared with him what I was seeing and and what I was noticing, and he actually thanked me in the moment for speaking truth into his life, and he assured me that he was going to be much more careful. And unfortunately, in time, he eventually cheated on his wife anyway. And it was hard to watch that unfold, knowing that, at least from my perspective, I thought I had done the best that I could to help him, but he wasn't receptive in the end to that help. This is a chapter of Proverbs that's like that. We have God trying to help us, and some people will be like, yeah, that sounds interesting. I will ignore that. And other people will look at that and say, you know what? I'm going to receive that well. Um, In a similar and in you know, similar, similarly tragic vein, I'll, I'll say. I just learned something about a prominent Christian leader um, who, for years, I thought this was somebody that projected faithfulness to his wife. Uh, he projected fidelity to the Scriptures during the entirety of his adult life, certainly as long as I've been aware of him. And unfortunately, while he was conveying the image of holiness and while he was conveying the image of faithfulness, it appears that he was leading a double life of sexual infidelity. Now, I'm purposely not using the person's name. Maybe some of you already figured out who I'm referencing. But I have to tell you, that's very discouraging to hear. So I don't want that to be the kind of testimony that we have. I want us to aim for something much higher. And again, why bring this up? You know, why address this? Well, for many, if not most people, this is one of the primary areas of temptation whereby the devil tries to gain a foothold in our lives. He's actively trying to gain a foothold in your life and my life in that specific area. And here, here's how you, how you can gauge some of this. Just look at our entertainment options. You know, our family always has such a difficult time trying to figure out a movie that we can, in good conscience, watch as a family now that we can just look online and, figure, and do, you know, some of those searches where it's like, all right, what's in this movie? You could find out what the content is before you watch it and see if there's anything that would trouble your conscience. And sometimes we spend more time trying to find a movie to watch than we actually spend watching a movie once we've actually found it. Uh, But this is an area where the devil tries actively to gain a foothold in our lives, our entertainment, uh, all sorts of influences all around us, preaching something that's unhealthy and unwise. And you really don't have to look very far to see the effects of what happens in a person's life when they give themselves over to sexual immorality. It doesn't end well. And let me also say this about marriage, because some of you have been married for a while. Some of you maybe have had difficult experiences in marriage. Some of you are thinking about getting married someday. It is a risk to marry somebody, is it not? You're taking a risk if you marry somebody. Um, It's a risk anytime you trust another person in any sphere of life, because you don't know what a person's going to do with your trust, right? Right? 
So it's entirely possible that, that the people in your life that you trust might go in a direction that breaks your heart. But keep in mind, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we're not talking about somebody else. We're not talking about what somebody else has done. What I want us to have in our mind as we look at this today is not feelings about what other people choose to do. I want us to look at this as, what should I do? How can I be personally a fair-proofing my heart? And so what we can do is we can open up our hearts to the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, and we can invite Him to lead us to the truth of the gospel and lead us away from temptation, because He gives us the strength that we need and the counsel that we need to enable us to avoid all kinds of temptations. And so with that in mind, I wanted to give that kind of as a a background to the scripture we're looking at today. Now I want us to dig into the counsel of Proverbs chapter 5, because in this chapter, we see a pattern where we we can read and learn about how the Holy Spirit is enabling us to affair-proof our hearts. We can affair-proof our hearts with His help, with His assistance. And there's a variety of things here we're going to look at. What I'm going to do is this. I'm going to share, in some respects, the don't of of each section right alongside with the do, because there's both that's demonstrated here. The don't do this, but do do this. And you see this even when we look at the first six verses. And as you look at these verses, what I want you to understand is this. We need to, to, you know, the don't is don't let yourself be enticed by smooth words. The do is speak the gospel to your spouse. Look at what it says in verses 1 through 6 of Proverbs 5. It says this, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol." She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. So let's pause there. When you look at those opening verses of Proverbs chapter 5, what we see is that Solomon does not mince words as he attempts to paint a picture in this passage. And so the image that he gives us here is the, the image of a woman who tries to tempt a man. But keep in mind, this same principle works the other way as well. Men tempt women. Women tempt men. Neither scenario is good. But the concept being conveyed here is the kind of person who tries to drag another person down into the depths of sin instead of building them up and pointing them to Christ. Now, when you analyze your life and when you look at what Scripture tells us about temptation, there are three primary sources of temptation. And it's wise to be aware of each. We can be tempted by other people. We can be tempted by the devil himself or his emissaries, and we can be tempted by ourselves. And ironically, I think we we more often tend to blame the devil or other people for tempting us, more so than we blame ourselves, even though I think we ourselves tend to be our primary source of temptation. I think if I look at my life and I'm brutally honest with you, I think I tempt me more than other people tempt me and probably even more than the devil tempts me. And in this passage, you have Solomon here demonstrating how the smooth words of somebody else, when combined with our willingness to participate in wickedness, it actually leads a person down the path of death. 
takes you right down the path of death. The path of death, the path of death is a path of ignorance. It's a path of rebellion without thought of the consequences of our choices. That's the path Solomon's describing here, he's, and he's inviting us not to go down that path. And we were all on that path before coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being placed on the path of life that Christ has placed us upon. And if we've received new life in Christ, it does not make sense for us to return to the path that He rescued us from. So let me just say it emphatically, don't go back to it, all right? Christ rescued you from it, He put you on a new path, don't go back to the old path, all right? Even if you hear nothing else today, hear that. Don't go back to the old path. And here you have Solomon demonstrating the folly and the peril that comes with it. And so, rather, instead of being enticed by the smooth words of someone who might tempt you, here we can look at that and say, all right, well, what's the reverse of that? Instead of being enticed by smooth words, what's the reverse of this? Well, the reverse of this is that we would use our words in a proactive way. If we're talking about affair-proofing our hearts, it's like, I don't want to be enticed by smooth words. I want to use words in a proactive way. And in the context of a marriage, the context of that relationship. If the Lord has blessed you with a spouse, speak the gospel to her. Speak the gospel to him. Use your words in a proactive way. Don't be led astray by unhealthy words. Give your spouse daily reminders of the grace of Christ and the faithfulness of Christ through the verbal reminders that you pepper them with all throughout the day. You don't have to be enticed by smooth words. You could use your words to continually preach the gospel to your spouse over and over and over again and remind them of the grace and the fidelity and the love of Jesus Christ. That would be the reverse. But now Solomon continues going down a path here where he's showing us, all right, here's another aspect of what it looks like to affair-proof your heart. And when you look at verses 7 and 8, he tells us here, Keep yourself away from tempting situations. So that would be, that would be something that we would say, all right, that's, that's the warning. Keep away from tempting situations. And the other aspect of this, if we're saying, all right, proactively, what should I also do? Spend time with your spouse, right? Keep yourself away from tempting situations. Rather, use time to spend with your spouse. So he says in verses 7 and 8, he says it this way. He says, and now, O sons, listen to me. And do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Those who know me best know that foods tend to be my biggest vice. It's true. All right, some of you are amening that. Like three of you raised your hands. I wasn't asking for group participation. You don't have to confess to each other. I'll do the confessing here for us if you want, but I'm just going to admit it. Foods tend to be my biggest vice. I wish it wasn't. I wish I had no vices. I wish I could just tell you, hey, I have a vice-free life, but I'm not quite there yet, right? And here's the dangerous thing about food. There, I'm, I am in no danger of losing my job if I confess to you that I eat poorly sometimes. Isn't that weird? It's still a vice, but I don't think I'm going to get fired. I don't think. We'll find out what the elders say after church. But I just confess to you, like, I kind of make bad choices with food sometimes, and I wish I didn't. And I remember when our family first moved here to Langhorn. And prior to that, we were living in the Poconos where nothing was close. Everything was a distance away. Well, you know, I got my weight to a real nice spot at that point. I didn't have any choice, really, in some respects. But when we moved here to Langhorn, I realized, wow, five minutes away, I've got this sweet. Five minutes away, I got this. You know, if you don't want fried chicken today, no problem. 
you can have chow mein tomorrow, you know? <laughs> or you could have pizza with all the toppings. It just, I was like, man, everything's five minutes from my house or my office. So whether I'm home or I'm at church, everything's just five minutes away. It's a five-minute drive. And it didn't take very long before I found myself eating lunch at one of my favorite restaurants almost every day. Literally, almost every day, at least on weekdays. And when I finally got to the point where I realized my pants were getting tight, um, and I, I thought to myself, how many calories am I eating? You know, and I, I did the math, and I realized that in one meal, I was making a daily habit of consuming more calories than I should consume over the course of an entire day. Dumb, right? That was dumb. And I kept doing that. And, I, and this is why it kept happening, because I would say to myself, all right, you can go there tomorrow, but tomorrow, get the salad. Or you could go there tomorrow, but tomorrow, get, get the wrap, but don't get the fries. And so that's what I would say to myself, right? Um, but for that pattern to be interrupted, I, I couldn't just, like, alter my choices there. I actually needed to, to stop visiting those restaurants. And I have to admit to you, it's still a struggle for me because I go back and forth. I mean, the world shut down recently, so I guess that helped. Um, But it it really was not enough for me to promise myself that I would make better food choices. I actually had to take a break from even going there. I had to take a break from eating there. Otherwise, I would be right back into what was tempting me most. And again, I still struggle with this. And you know why I struggle with this? Because I'm an emotional eater. That's what I've I've learned. You know, you become a bit more self-aware over the course of your life. I've realized when I'm happy, I should celebrate with food. If I'm feeling a little down today, you know what will fix that? also food. <laughs> if I feel like I'm bored, food will like, give me something to do. You know, I can just like, eat. It's ridiculous, right? I have a bad habit of medicating my stress with food. So with that in mind, why do you suppose, when you look back at these verses that I just read, why do you suppose that the father in this passage encourages the son to stay far away from the temptress, as he's talking about this example here? Why is he told that not, don't even go near the door of her house? Like, don't even go near the door of her house. Well, he's, be, he's being given this advice because proximity equals opportunity. Proximity equals opportunity. If you put yourself near what tempts you, you're more likely than not to give into it in a moment of weakness. And you have moments of weakness every single day of your life, even when you lie to yourself and tell yourself how strong you are today. If you, put, if you put yourself in a spot where what tempts you is there, proximity equals opportunity. And in a moment of weakness, don't be surprised if you just jump right back into it. But if you keep your distance, you're giving yourself less opportunity to fall. And so that's why the father in this passage here is saying to the son, don't even go near the door of her house. Now, when it comes to marriage, we can flip this concept on its head, and we could actually do something additionally proactive. So while keeping ourselves away from tempting situations, we can also begin to carve out more time with our spouse. That's a proactive way to handle this. And for some people, and maybe this is some of you, and and maybe some of you have noticed this about people in your life, for some people, the amount of time you spend with them, that's how they feel loved. They feel loved because you carve out time 
for them. That's the primary way for some people that they actually know that they are loved. That's actually something that I had to learn about my wife specifically. It, it, during the first year of us dating, I thought that if I told her I loved her, that conveyed love. Well, I'm a words person. That conveys love to me. But what I discovered after a while was she felt unloved because I tend to be busy. And when I'm not busy, I tend to make myself busy. And when you're making yourself busy, you don't always make the time for people. And I wasn't making enough time for her. And I remember early in our dating, even before we were married, realizing that that made her feel unloved because I wasn't carving out enough time for her. So as I matured and as our relationship matured and as we moved into marriage, it dawned on me that if I don't specifically carve out time for my wife, she will feel unloved. She needs, she needs time, not just words. She needs those too, but she also needs time. And so for some people, that's the primary way that they feel loved. So if you carve out time for your spouse, you're actually demonstrating that you'd rather be with them and you'd rather spend time with them than lurking near what might bring you down. So there's proactive ways for us to handle these things, and we should be wise about how we use our time. Don't lurk where you're tempted. Invest the time in your spouse in a proactive way. Solomon, again, develops the thought a little bit further. And when you look at verses 9 through 14, he says something that I hope our hearts will hear, and he makes it very clear. And what he reveals here is that you are not an exception to the downside of unfaithfulness. You're not the exception. So since you're not the exception to the downside of unfaithfulness, the proactive response, I think, is, okay, so then treat your spouse exceptionally well. Treat your spouse exceptionally well because you are not the exception to the downside of unfaithfulness. Look at verse 9 down to verse 14. He says it this way, Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline. And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. It's forceful words that Solomon uses in, the, in, those, in those verses here, but Solomon continues to demonstrate the importance of marital fidelity in this passage. And he reveals the part of the affair that most participants do their best to ignore. Everyone seems to think that they will be the one exception to the downside of unfaithfulness. When people talk themselves into uh, being unfaithful to their spouse, they're usually thinking that there will not be a consequence that's negative that comes into their life. They think something positive will come into their life, meaning they believe that they are an exception to the downside of unfaithfulness. But here's the thing. There are no exceptions. There are zero exceptions. I'm not an exception. You're not an exception. And no one you ever meet will be an exception to what Solomon's describing here. Solomon very clearly tells us that the unfaithful person can expect certain things. He says the unfaithful person can expect loss of honor oppression, to be taken advantage of, unexpected costs that derail their financial health, physical problems, and deep regret. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you, but that certainly gets my attention. And again, there are no exceptions to this rule. Zero exceptions. Everyone who persists in unfaithfulness eventually pays this price. 
But let me say something, because I hope that convicted all of our hearts. And I don't know who listens to the recordings of these messages or who might be joining us on our live stream. But it's entirely possible that somebody listening to this recording or somebody watching the live stream or even someone gathered together with us here in this room right now is feeling intense conviction in hearing the words from that portion of Proverbs. So what do you do with that conviction? What do you do with that if right now you're like, oh yeah, that's totally the direction I've allowed my life to go in? Well, here's the deal. You don't have to stay there. You don't have to, you could draw a line with your past. You don't have to keep going back to it, Right? One of the things that I love about our Lord is that He is compassionate and He is gracious to us. And here's the thing, nobody makes it through life mistake-free. Every single single one of us goes through life making a series of mistakes that remind us just how much we need Jesus. So don't think that somehow the mistakes you've made in your past disqualify you from the love of Christ being shown to you. In fact, the whole reason He came to this earth was because we're all messed up and we need His help. If we didn't need His help, why would He bother coming? He came because we were on a bad path, and he's trying to get us off of it and onto the path of life with him. So that's why I'm so grateful that our Lord's compassionate to us. It's very redemptive, very kind. Through Jesus Christ, we're given the opportunity to repent of our unfaithfulness. It's like, okay, maybe that was part of your past. Learn from it. Have a moment where you're like, all right, so what? That doesn't define me forever. If I give my life over to Christ, I have a new identity in Christ. I don't have to go back to that garbage. You do not have to go back to it. He will give you a new identity in Him. He gives you the, the opportunity to repent of your unfaithfulness, to get back on that path of life, to be cleansed of your iniquities. I love the familiar portion of Scripture that we read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. I'll read it for us. It says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just certain kinds of unrighteousness, Not just this sin over here, but not the big ones, right? It's like, no, even the big ones. He'll cleanse you of the big ones, too. He makes you brand new. Your identity is not wrapped up in the past mistakes that you made. That's old news. Draw a line, start fresh, confess, repent, and be cleansed, and then tell yourself as often as you need to hear it until you start believing it that you're not who you used to be. You're brand new. You're cleansed in Christ. Your identity is wrapped up in His identity. What a wonderful Savior we have. Isn't that wonderful? That He would allow us to just bring it out into the light, confess it, Lord, I took my life in this direction. This wasn't good. It's like, yeah, no kidding. Good, good thing that you, you, know, like you don't have to stay there. Now you get to live the fullness of life through me. Christ offers us that. Isn't that wonderful? And I love what 1 John 1, 9 reminds us of that. So instead of convincing ourselves that somehow we're the downside or, or an exception to the downside of unfaithfulness, what we have the opportunity to do is to confess our unfaithfulness and experience the cleansing. And then as we become convinced that the Lord has shown us His mercy and compassion, we can translate that into treating our spouses exceptionally because you've been exceptionally treated You've been treated exceptionally by Christ, and as you internalize that and embrace that and just find yourself basking in it and relieved by it, you have the privilege to then translate that into how you treat your spouse. And it's like, you know what? I, des- I receive so much blessing from Christ that I don't deserve. How can I pour some of that out from this overflow into your life? As one who's treated exceptionally, treat your spouse 
exceptionally and make the point to demonstrate the sacrificial love and the sacrificial fidelity of Christ within your own household. Fourth thing that Solomon brings up in Proverbs chapter 5 that I want to point out to us because it's important, and that says, be satisfied with the blessing that God has selected for you. Be satisfied with your blessing and then be a blessing to the one God chose for you. Be satisfied with the blessing, and then be a blessing. Look at what he says in verse 15 down to verse 20. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your, of your youth a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Remember when restaurants did not give you free refills with your beverages, like the dark ages? Does everyone remember that? It was a tough time. Some of us lived through it. Some of you are young enough that you're like, there was a time you did not get a free refill with your beverage at a restaurant. Believe me, the history of America goes like this. Revolutionary War, Civil War, Great Depression, no refill era, present day. I'm not an expert on this, but I believe it's something like that. So we, some of us had to endure the no refill era, and it was hard. Um, but I remember... You know, when I was in high school, that was still the no-refill era, and I was playing on our tennis team, and our tennis team had a match at a distant place. It was far away, and our tennis coach decided after the match that, that we would go to a restaurant that had a buffet, uh, which that part was good. I mean, you could just order off the menu, or you could use, like, it was like a salad bar-type buffet, and I was like, oh, I'll get the salad bar, but your refills were not free. You get one drink, or you could buy multiple drinks, but your refills were not free. So I ordered a large iced tea, and I was thirsty after the tennis matches, and so I thought, all right, an iced tea, this will be good. And I made the mistake of getting up from the table uh, for a little bit as I was refilling my plate, and I remember at one point I came back, and I look at my tea, and there's like this much left in it. And I look at it, and the guy across from me who did not order an iced tea is drinking iced tea. And I look at him, and it doesn't take a train detective to figure out what happened while I was up at the salad bar. And I said to him, did you take my iced tea? And I looked at the guilt flood on his, you know, just his face. I was like, and his name was Matt, right? And I was like, Matt. I was like, did you take my tea? And uh, and he was very sheepishly looked at me. He was like, yeah. And I was like, I want it back. I want it back. And if you don't give me that tea back, this is going to end poorly. And so he sheepishly took his cup and then dumped it back into mine. And now that I think about it, I'm like, in, at this season, my life, we're like, just keep the tea. Just keep it. Like, I don't want your backwashed tea in my tea. But in the moment, I wasn't thinking that. I was incredulous and had to stand my ground. He took my tea. I'm 44 years old, and it's still sticking in my mind, right? It's been... How many years? You know, it's been like 30 years since this happened, or 29 years. Anyway, I'll get over it. You know, I'll think about something else this afternoon, but right now I'm steeped in that moment. Regardless, 
Solomon tells us here that when it comes to married life, don't try and steal somebody else's drink. It's a very real application. I never knew I would be sharing that moment as an application to a sermon topic, but is that not what Solomon says here? It's exactly what he says here. It ticks people off when you steal their drink. Don't steal somebody else's drink. Drink, The way he says it, drink water from your own cistern. Drink water from your own cistern. Enjoy the blessings and the benefits of marital intimacy without attempting to satisfy that desire outside of marriage. So be satisfied with the blessing God's given you and be a blessing to the one God has blessed you with. Don't covet somebody else's blessing. And don't forget that that marriage is meant to demonstrate the love of Christ for his bride, the church. So on a microcosm level, our marriages are meant to demonstrate the love of Christ for the church. And we're not to forget that. That's something Scripture brings up for us so that we would remember that. So what we're called to do is to guard, protect, and provide for our marriages in a way that demonstrates a reflection of how Christ is caring for his Don't drink somebody else's drink. Be satisfied with the blessing that God has given you. And then Solomon wraps this up with one more piece of advice for us that's powerful and applicable to every single area of our lives, and that's this. God is watching. So keep a close eye on your life and your motives. God's watching. Keep a close eye on your life and your motives. He says in verse 21 down to verse 23, he says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So Solomon's wrapping this up here. He just takes a moment here to remind us of something healthy that we far too often forget. And he brings our attention to the fact that the eyes of God are always upon us. And that is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. God is watching. There is nothing about our lives. There's nothing about our motives that can be hidden from him. He knows it all. He knows everything I ever say, everything I ever think, everything I ever do, and the same is true for you as well. And if we squelch our conscience, and if we try to live as if God cannot see us or will not hold us accountable, what we'll end up doing is we'll find ourselves dreadfully ensnared in the cords of sin. That's what Solomon's talking about here in this portion of Scripture. We'll be led astray toward folly. And what happens when you're led astray toward folly and you become ensnared in it, it has a very tragic demise. Well, God loves you too much, and He's done too much for you to want to see your life go in that direction. So, I don't know how this chapter of Proverbs strikes your ears, but one of the things that I hope you can hear as we just ponder what's revealed to us in it, I hope you can hear God's protective care in the words that are being shared here. He isn't revealing the downside of unfaithfulness to beat us up as, you know, if we're already feeling guilty about something. He's not telling you these things to, to make you feel worse. He's not telling you these things to beat you up if you're already feeling um, conviction about something. What he's doing here is he's, he's revealing the truth to us so that we won't take our lives in an ungodly and unwise direction. He's giving us words of prevention while also reminding us that he's the cure for this problem. He's, his words are preventative, but he himself is the cure. 
Christ is the solution for our wandering hearts. He truly is the solution for our wandering hearts. Through Christ, we can affair-proof our life. If your heart will find satisfaction in Christ, you're, you're less likely to go in a direction that would break his heart. Because you realize that Christ is sufficient for you. You're not trying to find your satisfaction through something destructive, something lesser. And by finding our satisfaction in Christ, we also don't need to spend our lives trying to satisfy the cravings of our old sinful nature because we have a new nature that we were given the moment we trusted in Christ. So live in that new nature. Recognize that Christ will fill the voids that you sometimes feel or maybe frequently feel. Christ will fill that void. Christ is our satisfaction. I just want to end us today on two things Jesus said that illustrate that very concept, that Christ is sufficient for us. And this is where we'll end this morning. He says this to us in John chapter 4, verse 14. He says, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Christ satisfies the deepest longings of our soul. He satisfies our deepest thirst. I also love what he tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The things of this world, if you go chasing after the things of this world, if you go chasing after whatever it is that tempts you, you'll keep chasing after it and you'll keep trying to get more and more of it because you'll convince yourself, oh, maybe I just need more of this because the last dose did not satisfy me. And then you'll keep getting more and more and more of it and what ends up happening? You end up dead. That's how it ends. You die. Or you could come to Christ and recognize that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are satisfied in Him. And you live. And you go on living. You experience abundant life. You experience eternal life. Because you remain connected to the source of life, Jesus Christ. And that's His encouragement for us even as we look at a portion of Scripture like this today. So if your desire is to truly affair-proof your heart, the solution is to find your satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this today and really wrestle with what you're saying here. And Lord, we know that it's so easy for us to get derailed with these things. In a world that, that tries to tempt us and surrounded by people who may try to tempt us and then filled with our own desire to tempt ourselves, Lord, it's so easy to get off the path. And many people we love and, and even us have gone off that path in one way or another. Lord, we've already demonstrated that we absolutely have the propensity to do that. And we'd be lying to ourselves if we said otherwise. But Lord, we're, we're grateful for the fact that you not only would give us a revealing portion of Scripture like this that already tells us the outcome, but that you would also look at, at, at those of us who have heavy hearts when we really think about this, and we can even testify from personal experience that, 
yeah, that happens, and that happens, and yep, that's absolutely true. Seen it, experienced it. Whatever thoughts may be going through our mind, Lord, as we're, as we're reading a portion of Scripture like this, we're just grateful for the fact that we can come before you and confess and repent and walk on that new path that you've given to us. Thank you for not leaving us where you found us. Thank you for seeing us when we were in our rebellion and when we were embracing death and reaching into that mess and offering us life. And Lord, as we're on this path of life now through faith in you, we pray that we wouldn't veer off of it. We pray that the old path that we were on would no longer appeal to us. We pray that as we recognize that it's there, that we would also have a resolve in our heart that's empowered by your Holy Spirit to say, I don't want to go back to that. Whatever source of temptation we have wrestled with, Lord, help us to apply it to this portion of Scripture here. And Lord, by your grace, we pray that we would walk in the newness of life that recognizes that you satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. We're just so grateful, Lord, to be able to spend some time thinking about these things today. And we're grateful for your love. Thank you for being with us right now. And thank you for nurturing us and steering our lives and leading us on this path of life. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.